You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello there, Stuart Goldsmith here. This is uh, the Comedian's Comedian podcast. And I managed to abbreviate my own name there. I managed to make it, um, I, I'm, it was halfway between Stu and Stuart. Did you hear? Listen back to that. I think I said, hello there, Stuart Goldsmith here. Like that, you could just, Stu, go, Stu Gold. Yeah, I never know what to say when people bring me on. People, other comics go, um, uh, what do you want to come on as, Stu or Stuart? And I often say, I honestly don't care. That is just a tiny part of why my brand is not big. <laughs> so let's get on with this. This is the wonderful Daniel Rigby. Now, as you will hear, Daniel Rigby is a BAFTA winning actor. He won a BAFTA 10 years ago or so uh, for his portrayal of the young Eric Morecambe. If you're listening outside of the UK, Eric Morecambe is one of the most loved and legendary key figures in British comedy. So we will talk a little bit about how scary it was. I think that's in the extras, in fact, because on this main episode, we're going to be talking about, um, and this is you know, if you're a fan of this show, uh, I don't know if you're coming to me from Daniel or if you're coming to me because you've listened to the last 401 episodes, but this is absolute com-com bait. We're going to be talking about creativity, dread, anxiety, and why there is more of him than he intended uh, in the ultra-nihilist protagonist of his recent audio book, uh, which he wrote and performed himself, Isaac Steele and the Forever Man. Now, you have had to suffer through me banging on about this audio book um, for the last few episodes, and this is finally the episode on which we'll talk about it. I cannot recommend it enough. You can find it only on Audible, but it is absolutely worth signing up for the free trial for. Um, and why not, if you're again Bezos and the likes of him, then uh, why not set a reminder in your calendar to remind you to bug out before the end of the 30 days? But holy heck, do give Isaac Steele and the Forever Man a solid go. I was probably five minutes in when I thought, yep, I'm going to listen to all 13 hours of this. It's an extraordinary achievement. If you're a fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and things of that ilk, I think you're really going to love it with bits of, I mean, uh, not necessarily influences, but in terms of tone, things like the Framley Examiner is in there somewhere. Or um, what's the what? Is it the Framley Examiner that has those incredible things like Beware the Void and all those kind of local parish notices? I think it's from something else. Nonetheless, we will talk about uh, the creation of that book. We will talk about what, if anything, might be happening next for Isaac Steele. And we'll be talking about Daniel Rigby's return to stand-up and the fact that, um, despite being a BAFTA winning and uh, like an incredible actor with a phenomenal 
original uh, comic and proper CV, uh, he still doesn't feel like he's proper because he hasn't done stand-up for some time and is now returning to it. So we're going to get stuck into that. Go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to join the Insiders Club for 25 minutes of extras, uh, including Daniel on uh, on that responsibility he felt playing Eric Morecambe on screen, how he manufactured a middle-class bumble to disguise his working-class background and uh, more stuff on the journey of stand-up rather than the destination it's a cracker. Let's get into it. This is, I can't believe as a podcaster, I just said, let's get into it. Oh my God, I humbly apologise. But let's get into it. This is Daniel Rigby. The thing I'm most excited about is Isaac Steele and the Forever Man, Great. which is your brilliant audio book that I've made a lot of assumptions about, such as it was your COVID project. Right, yeah. All that kind of thing. Don't know if it was, what have you. Um, but I kind of want to... Uh, I'll, I never do this. I always get 10 minutes into an interview and then go, God, I haven't told them I think you're funny. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> right, so right. let me start with... Um, uh, no, I feel like that kind of implies that I think you're funny. So maybe yeah, that's okay. enough. So maybe that's to say it. Yeah. Why don't you... It'd be nice for you to say it as well. Oh, you're really funny. <laughs> you're, well, the thing is... You're such. You're really annoying because you, you're one of those people that seems to be really good at everything. But also, I feel like I know enough of your mentality from the small amount we knew each other back in the day. Yeah. Um, that you'll probably go. Oh no! You'll probably have the mentality. Of, oh no! I'm time is just a complete shit, and I can't cope with anything. And, I, and be all actively like that. Yeah, that's good insight. <laughs> <laughs> that's good psychological insight. Yeah. You started off in. You started off as a comic. You were on the stand-up circuit. Yes. You yeah. did stand-up, and it wasn't. It, was it sketches as well, or was it? Yeah, you I, were a stand-up whilst being a proper actor. I was doing. Uh, well, the first thing was acting and drama school, and then a couple of years after that, I was doing a play in Nottingham and started doing stand-up on my own while I was rehearsing the play. Okay. I went to Chortle and found a gig mm-hmm. and started doing stand-up and then never really gigged with sketching character stuff, just kind of accidentally put... Always wrote sketching character stuff, hadn't performed it, and then did a an evening uh, at my drama school in the bar just performing sketches, and my agent for stand-up came along to that and said you should do that as a show so I sort of took that almost completely wholesale um, in the classic uh, in the classic way that I am i.e. lazily and uh, just did that in Edinburgh Okay, um, was that the Mothwalk Fantastic? That was that, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I remember the title. I don't think I ever saw the show How do you feel about it now? Uh, about the show? Yeah like, do you, is it sort of a, oh, I can stand by that, that was me at the time doing the best, or do you look back on it thinking, God, I didn't know what I was doing? Or I think there's just, it went, it went well, and I enjoyed doing it, but I, I, I feel like that formative few years of doing live gigs and doing comedy, I never really got a grip on exactly how I should be working, what my thing was, what my, why I was... Not, not why I was doing it. It's, it's always felt like um, comedy is my thing. That's always what I've wanted to do. But um, n- never properly got found my voice. or so. And I wish I'd worked harder. I think I look back on it and go, you were ha- it, it went quite well. Uh, you didn't need to necessarily try harder. So <laughs> you didn't, you know. And, and, the, and the, yeah, so I look back on it and go, the show was, I, I'm happy with 
some of the sketches looking back on them but um, I think I could have with stand-up as well I think I could have at that time worked more professionally and been more aware of what I should have been doing you know doing my full time on stage for example and writing new material more regularly I would I, th- I think mainly out of fear, I would just do the same things over okay. and over again and and cling on to material for dear life. So I look back with that kind of feeling about that time. And how long did you... Is it firmly in the past? Is stand-up something you'll never return to? Well, Stuart, oh, well. only a couple of days ago, I've booked my first stand-up gig in nine years. Fucking A. Yeah, so I think it's always what I've wanted to do. I mean, it, it, it really is all... All I've ever wanted is to be a stand-up, and uh, I kind of stopped doing it um, out of. Well, I mean, acting. I, I have, you know, it didn't really take over. I think that's a bit of an excuse because it feels like it feels like I just let fear take over because a couple of acting jobs interfered with the rhythm of doing a lot of gigging and doing Edinburgh and you know I couldn't one year fell out of the habit and then let the fear dictate that I wouldn't do it again it's always felt really really important as well so it's that I think there's something at my core which is which is afraid of it because it feels so important perversely why, why do you why do you think what's your theory for why stand up feels so important to the kind of your self image I know this sounds absolutely ridiculous as well because I've not done it for like almost a decade properly um, I don't know I think that I, I think it's just that f- funny and being uh, feeling funny and trying to get a laugh has always felt like a really good thing in my life and I think I built an identity around it when I was a kid yeah I mean that's a total cliche but I think that is genuinely what what has happened and so probably for very deeply unhealthy reasons it feels like it's that that uh, it's it's the main thing I've got to offer and uh, it's the core thing about me um, and that I have to try and do it uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's so good that's so exciting but what would you what, what would your advice be if, if you hadn't done it for nine years what would you how how should I so you haven't approach? done a gig I did one years. gig okay I did one gig uh, six years ago at the invitation of Ashling B in Los Angeles okay and I did um, mainly I did some stuff about I did some new stuff about LA at the beginning of it, which probably lasted all of 45 seconds, and then I did some old stuff. And um, it went brilliantly, and I thought, oh, great, I'm just going to yeah, do this again. But that just didn't materialise. Okay. Um, Were you nervous before going on and doing that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Terrible, terrible nerves. Always. And do you think the nerves? I'll give you some. I'll give you. I won't. I won't uh, pretend to give you advice in any kind of official capacity. But I've probably got things I can say about it. Um, But what do you think the nerves are about? Are the nerves because it's so important to you? Because I'm interested. What? Because it's one of those situations where, on like, you are a phenomenal actor. You're a really funny comic actor. You're a proper, proper actor. Like, you won the BAFTA for, I don't know the title of it, the be- like best acting performance. Yeah, yeah, best For, for best playing actor. Eric Morgan, best yeah, actor. Yeah, 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 yeah best actor. <laughs> best actor. Sort actually. of thing I should have known. Um, <laughs> for playing Eric Morgan yeah. in Eric and Ernie, yeah. like 11 years ago, something like that? Uh, Some years ago? Nearly 10? 11 years ago, yeah. And 
and uh, notably at the time beat uh, both Benedict Cumberbatch Clutch. and Matt Smith, Matt Smith and uh, Jim Broadbent <laughs> which is ridiculous isn't it <laughs> much much better one in the eye for Broadbent uh, <laughs> yeah. Smith and Cumberbatch all of them furious <laughs> <laughs> but like that's you know that and the the things you've done since then landscapers um, flowers which I'm just obsessed with I think flowers is brilliant um, which is not to be sniffy at all about landscapers which I've also seen him as great and Black Mirror like you have a proper a proper healthy acting CV by anyone's standards but do you feel deep down like you're still a big failure because you haven't mastered stand-up comedy absolutely <laughs> I feel it's it. pathetic isn't it isn't it pathetic it's, it's also just this typical thing isn't it about human beings you feel like every human being you talk to is like oh I've got the wrong life <laughs> I should be this or I should be that I want this I want I want what I don't have but um, yeah and I know it sounds like massively ungrateful, ungrateful for what I do have because I know I'm in an extraordinarily lucky position uh, with m- my acting career but um, it was all, acting always felt like it happened accidentally because I wanted to do comedy and there's just yeah. no there's no um, educational route in yeah. to Stand up or anything like that, but you can go to a drama school. It just felt like performing was always it was always a byproduct of wanting to wanting to do comedy. Is there this is a, this is a wild uh, long shot? Mm. Is there a relationship between the fact that you secretly prefer stand up to acting and how good you are as an actor? Because I think some people, if like if all you wanted to do was be an actor, would it make you a less good actor? Do you know what I mean? Because you would you be kind of would one be needy as an actor because one wanted it so desperately, or is there kind of like if you sort of secretly regard it as your backup gig, does that mean that you can be casual about it? I feel like that's an absolutely impossible question to answer. Okay, okay. <laughs> but I, f- I feel like it's part of a trope of things that people say about auditions, which is if you go in and you don't want it, you'll get it, you know, because you're more relaxed or. But um, I do, I do love acting, and I and I and I, and I try really hard <laughs> um, when I'm doing it. Uh, so I don't want to sound completely laissez-faire about it, but um, I don't know, maybe there's something in that. It's just hard to. It's it's just funny. Measure. I think that's what I'm getting at is the the audition thing. Obviously, the stand-up version of that, as I'm sure you know, is like the less you care about the audience, often the funnier you are, the truer, the more honest you are. Right. And um, it's just interesting. I'm, I think that's quite. Interesting, the, the the relative amounts through which one is kind of like does need get in the way. Do yeah, and well, I mean, I guess the kind of comedy that I always dislike the most when I see it is the the comedy that sits up and begs for a biscuit. You know, the the the, the stuff that's really you can tell how badly someone wants that laugh. Mm-hmm. I always feel like the most successful uh, comedians that I see and the most successful comedy in theatre and is something that has a bit of a... It's holding something back from you. It needs you to do a bit of work. Yeah. There's a bit of a secret there. Um, so, yeah. You were saying the... Um you can sense that that's your least favourite kind of stand-up where you can sense how much they need a laugh. Yeah. 
And yet you seem, in the 13 minutes we've done so far, to really need a laugh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so oh, yeah. is there... Because I think often when people go, oh, I, ha- or I certainly... Let's make it personal. Certainly when I've been like, I hate that kind of comedy or that particular act. Yeah. Part of it is because like, I secretly recognise myself in it. Oh. All my fears about myself. Absolutely. Probably. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And also, it's really important to bear in mind that I don't have a fucking clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, I, as soon as I say something, you know, it's good to pontificate, but as soon as I say something, I'm, there's a voice in my head going, you're talking absolute shit. So that's also important to remember as you listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, it's funny because you do have that kind of, like, I remember I, I listened, as part of my research, I listened to an interview you did in Montreal. Oh my god! Um, so that must have been like nine years ago or so, something like that. No, that would or have been more. Thirteen years. Thirteen ago. years yeah. ago. So what were the circumstances under which you went to, to Just for Laughs in Montreal? Oh, that was pretty. Were you like an early award winner or something in comedy? Did, what was the route there? I, uh, I did. I did. Yeah, I won Laughing Horse New Act of the Year two thousand and seven. Okay. Was a finalist in So You Think Funny that year, and yeah, very quickly there was a. Booked a lot of gigs got, uh, and ended up on the Pleasance in the Pleasance Review Show the year after. Okay. And through that, got an audition for the Montreal Comedy Festival, okay. which was, it was actually 2009 and I was doing songs for it. It was, mu- it was my music. It was, because I did, I used to do really stupid songs in the sketch show. Okay. And um, very weird, very stupid songs. And the booker for Montreal came to the Pleasant show and it went terrifically that night and so booked me for Montreal and then I turned up at this the music show was um, what's it called it's called the same thing every year Bo Burnham was the year he was in it the year before that year Reggie Watts was emceeing brilliant I love him and Dead Cat Bounce were in it and then the rest of it was a lot of hip hop and rap uh, high octane uh, big acts that were doing like energy pumping stuff and I would come out and do a whimsical song about a worm that wants to be an accountant <laughs> <laughs> with a little keyboard and uh, wowee people didn't know what to make of that um, yeah so that was, that, was, that was Montreal but I can't remember being interviewed were there moments in your comedy career such as that night when you spanked it and got noticed by the Montreal booker yeah. where you really felt like I'm doing the thing properly I'm the, I'm the proper thing I've got it here I've got it by the throat um, well there were definitely times where I yeah there were times when I felt at home uh, on a stage and doing it and doing the shows and I did a stand-up hour the year after, um, which, uh, yeah, that I remember in the middle of that run feeling, because also doing, I'd never done so many consecutive, so much stage time consecutively, because mm-hmm. it was my first um, proper stand-up show, and there was a there was a settling that happened. So I still get nervous, but there was, it wouldn't be fight or flight, climbing the walls. Um, Stuff and there was a settling, and it did feel like okay, this is at home, and 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 you know, a lot of the time the show went well, so it was, it did feel yeah, it felt good, and yeah, like I was doing it proper. Um, yeah, I just didn't keep it up. 
So this is Daniel. Tremendous fun talking to him and really great to discover uh, that he is an angry weirdo. <laughs> or rather, that he is able to contact that part of himself, which is an angry weirdo, uh, when performing brilliantly as he does. And, you know, the, the book, Isaac Steele and the Forever Man, is as well as being light-hearted in a lot of places and silly and imaginative, incredibly exorbitantly imaginative. Um, it also is kind of suffused with this sort of existential dread horror, as Daniel will say, we'll go on to say nihilism. Um, and it has as, as solid a recommendation as this humble podcaster feels able to give you. So um, Insiders Club, if you're in the Insiders Club, not only have you got extras from every episode that uh, that has them, but you will also get 25 minutes of extras, including Daniel on playing Eric Morecambe, uh, the cross between or the, the, the dynamic between his uh, working class roots and the middle class affectations that uh, were forced on him by numerous dead arms at school um, and uh, and more besides. So lots to get into there. Uh, join the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. £2 a month or as much as you would care to donate. Everyone gets the same stuff. Um, and I've got some ideas for a big Christmas merch thing. And yes, other podcasters, if you're listening to this and thinking... God, I mean, it's only May. Now's when you've got to be organising your Christmas merch because every November I think, oh, I really should have organised some Christmas merch. Let's see if I manage to do it this time. Now, loads of work in progress and previews and all sorts coming up. If you have been a fan of The Infinite Sofa and you've been following uh, Sofa So Funny, which is the comedy night started by Leslie Gold and featuring many of the uh, the denizens, what can I call them? The, the community, the horrors, the absolute horrors uh, from The Infinite Sofa. Um... Uh, they are loads of them have been doing stand up and I'm going to go and headline a gig there. It's coming up soon on the 13th of June. That's Monday, the 13th of June. It's in London Bridge. So have a look for that. It's on the mailing list. If uh, there's, there's a link to it on the mailing list on, in which I got the name of the show wrong. Saws. Um, but uh, come along and see that. There's all sorts of exciting things happening as well. I'm meeting producer Callum in person for the first time, having known him for two years. Extraordinary post-pando thing. Um, I've got a creativity conference that I'm speaking up that's uh, coming up soon as well. And um, loads and loads of uh, uh, work in progress shows, often with Sarah Keyworth or uh, Nabil Abdul-Rashid. We are going to be doing all sorts of things around the southwest. So I'm doing loads of things. I mean, those guys are all over the country, but I'm keeping mine to places like Swindon, Bournemouth, Sirencester, or Sissister, to call it its correct and deeply pedantic name. Um, Salisbury, Bath. Uh, where's that one? That's in uh, Cardiff, in Barry, in Barry, in Cardiff, and Fordingbridge. Me neither. All of those things are coming up, so keep an eye on at ComComPod on Twitter and indeed on Instagram. And also, you could bloody well actually go to Instagram for once because there is starting to be content on there now. Um, and Callum and I will be pumping out. I regret saying that, but we will be uh, sloshing. What's the word for uploading <laughs> things? Sloshing? Christ. Um, we'll be putting a lot more on, on uh, Instagram.com slash ComComPod as no one formats that sentence. Uh, in the days and weeks to come. So let's get back to this conversation with the fantastic Daniel Rigby. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What do you think it is that casting directors look for you for? Like, is there a particular... Is there a particular flavour you have or that you offer that is either purely acting? You know, some people are sort of often castable as... I always think the sorts of people that end up playing the president mm. in several different movies, you go, well, clearly they're presidential, aren't they? Or the, the bad guy. You know, what's his face? I don't remember the name of the actor, but uh, Mike from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah he's, yeah. God, my God, isn't he brilliant? And then you yeah. see a video of like, oh, he was one of the two baddie cops in Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. And you go, oh, fucking hell. He's, like, he's kind of morphed in that kind of way. So the way that actors... Cut, I mean, I'm, and my vocabulary for analysis is much uh, better for stand-up than for acting, about which I know relatively little. Yeah. But what do you think it is that you... Like, what sort of roles do you get offered? What sort of thing is it that people go, we need one of them, we, let's get Daniel? Uh, I think it's a nondescript face. <laughs> <laughs> I think they need... Because quite often I'm putting either a wig or a pair of glasses, or that guess-who element to it, the potato head. They need a potato head to put a moustache on. Come on! on. <laughs> <laughs> glasses and some ears. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I play a lot of... I mean, I, I would hope that... Um, I, I love... I loved, playing comedy and getting it under the hood of comedy scripts and doing that and I hope that that's, that's something that I, I bring but um, in terms of you know, I play a lot of kind of angry weirdos yeah you do, you do, and and you don't look like an angry weirdo, but oh, you thanks. kind of smell like one. Do you know what I mean? You look like you've got like um, right. I was I've probably referred to the show in the past, but a, a very good my best friend at school had this quality whereby he was a little sort of uh, arguably nerdy guy in his mm. NHS specs with transformer logos on them, but no one ever fucked with him because he just had the whiff of I might be mental, mm. and I wonder if there is a sort of there is a whiff of a kind of repressed anger to you oh right yeah. do you know what I mean oh yeah like you look like you could kick off okay right <laughs> whilst apologising do you do, you do you see that does that does that observation resonate at all do yeah you, do you think that yeah 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 definitely yeah that, that might be that might be what they want that might be the product that they, <laughs> they they're, they're after <laughs> is that repressed rage could you kick off at any minute do you feel that you have repressed rage no no, I don't. I don't feel. Uh, well, I mean, do I? Is that an honest answer? I want to be honest with you, Stuart. I want to be honest with you. Um, well, I mean, I. Uh, yeah, I mean, I do. I do have. Uh, I mean, I hope that I don't bring a sort of unhinged quality to to every conversation. <laughs> but there is. Uh, I mean, and I don't know whether it's something that I bring to parts, but there's a chaos definitely to that I feel, and I have a long, you know, long, uh, 
I've lived with mental health stuff mm. for ages. I mean, yeah. since being a teenager, and I've, I've got treatment for that, and I'm and uh, in a way better place now than I have been in ages. But um, maybe that is there's an there's an element of of uh, uh, bafflement and anger and and uh, occasionally deep. Uh, depression <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> but um, I thought that's something that people can recognise and I don't know but it's all part of the mix isn't it I guess it is something that you as a person bring to a role to a conversation um, but uh, you know by chaos mm. I think chaos is a really interesting word in that context because it is and and that might lead us in a minute onto the Isaac Steele stuff which mm. is kind of a, a lone man taking on chaos and like the most the biggest kind of built out world of like a universe worth of chaos but just to stay with that word for a second as it pertains to I don't really have a question about it I'm just like yeah all of that makes sense right. <laughs> so, do you know what I mean yeah like okay. kind of maybe not repressed rage so much as repressed chaos or a repressed recognition of chaos yeah do you know what I mean like if I was if I was casting a sort of Stephen King short story where as a lot of his short stories are a load of people get fixed in a situation and gradually go nuts at each other yeah like you'd be a, I'd call you because I'd be like oh yeah you could be one of them that's like turns out to yeah. flip out right right yeah I mean my, my real life flip outs have been like really rare thankfully so but uh there is that element to, um, I mean, yeah, just being honest. I've definitely, in in my life, there's a constant. Uh, uh, there, there's ma- there's management going on quite a lot of the time. With you know, I, I now manage through exercise and trying to eat better and all those you know the absolute cliche things mm. that all work and are all pain in the arse and great. no one wants to do them when you suggest them it does fucking work yeah, yeah. so try you know try and do it but it's been a fe- it's been a feature of my life that I do go to places that are that have occasionally terrified me and have sought out help when I've needed it mm. and that um, I think when you're a person that has that thing to manage there's some there's sometimes and I don't know whether it's the truth of reality or not you you feel like there's a veneer to things that underneath there's this which is how you feel you're projecting how you feel but if underneath you've got turmoil and uh Negativity and a, a battling all kinds of like a, a whole gallery of goblins and and demons shouting shit at you. That that the chaos is there. You know, you feel like it's there underneath the underneath the surface. Um, but uh, this might be a bit too intense. I'm but it, I'm really happy <laughs> hearing it, and I think. Um, Fucking good tape, Daniel. I don't mean that. <laughs> I don't mean that. And feel free to redact as much of it as you'd like, but I, I don't think any of that would need 
would need redacting, I feel like I'm really appreciative that that's really honest and I think people will really respond to that because I think comics often talk about anxiety and fear and stuff like that and anger comes up less often but depression as we as we know I guess is uh, anger turned inwards mm-hmm. as they say um, like I I don't have much of a relationship with anger pre-parenthood um, but I do have a relationship with depression and with anxiety and kind of mm-hmm. my stuff is all like am I good enough and I don't think I'm living up to my potential and, and I've kind of gradually sought to extract myself from that and mm-hmm. a big a big challenge in that has been like oh how good is my job for me mm-hmm. how good is my job at actually healing the things I feel about myself oh, and how yeah. good it is, is it at providing a welcome distraction a shitload of dopamine and great let's reset and let's not solve any of the challenges because now I feel amazing again and then let's restart the clock everyone you know oh, mate I've had that conversation with myself so many times even well, I mean on a even with just any, any entertainment industry which can feel like such a head up ass thing to do whether if you're someone who it's not necessarily the best thing for your head to be up your ass then whether you should be doing it full stop yeah whether it's a good thing a healthy thing yeah. I mean who knows just it is the thing that I can yeah. do but whether it's good or not who knows but do you do you find kind of respite in in acting in certain roles do you find that when you're you know um just to come back to Donald, great example of repressed rage or barely repressed or not very mm. repressed rage, which I realise now, I mean, it was probably a long time ago, Flowers. I don't know how long ago that was, but I just think the whole thing's a masterpiece. I only recently discovered there was a second series, so I tanned it all this week. Oh, Fucking nice. wow, great. <laughs> what, what finer feeling is there? Yeah. I mean, that's Will Sharp, who is a real visionary. Just incredible. Yeah. Just incredible. And what an amazing kind of like a Radiohead album change of a second series when it just yeah. turns into a whole different thing yeah but with that when you're when you're kind of doing the screaming mad Donald bits yeah which are this is the most wonderful sort of depiction of this brother and son who's just kind of so repressed and trapped in himself yeah um do you find them cathartic, I suppose, or or like just purely from the opportunity? Certainly, when I've been down, if I can get on stage and get love bombed for complaining, it makes me feel pretty good. Is, yeah, there, is yeah. there a parallel whereby you can kind of fucking shout it out and get it done for numerous takes? Does that help, or is that just a, a kind of you know, tears of a clown cliche bullshit? No, well, I don't know. I, I don't know if it. I, I don't know if it helps. I, f- I, I feel like there might be. Uh, there's a an easy access to it, which um, yeah. is uh, I, d- I don't I don't yeah I, and I, I don't want to emphasise anger too much because I'm really not a person who's like filled with like rage who goes around really cross all the time. I'm quite a nice person, but um, there's an access to that stuff that I think, and I think that yeah, in exercising it, it does feel a bit like a uh, bit of a release, a bit of a a, va- a valve on the pressure cooker or whatever being being released so maybe there is yeah maybe there is something in that um but i've always felt happiest expressing uh comedy i mean that's always been the um and i, I sound like a ridiculous human being because no you don't no you don't shut in, up in a professional shut up. no you don't but, 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 you, but you know what i mean like that's that feels like um a very happy place is writing something and um putting it out there and and having people laugh that's always felt like the good thing 
tell me about tell me what you mean by getting under the hood of comedy when you were talking about like taking a, a character or a, a role I believe you call them you, you <laughs> actors oh, very nice yeah. um, like to get under the hood of it what does that mean as, as pretentiously and personally and intimately as possible what does that mean to you it, it well with I guess it just means trying to think about what makes it work and why it works is is different for almost uh, everything in comedy, the different styles. And I, I love trying to pick apart what, what, it, what it is that's funny about about something and finding the rhythm of... Like, feel, it feels like, uh, for me anyway, tempo is such an important part of comedy that... Um, there's always a finding the correct rhythm for a bit in a script or that that feels the funniest that's always a pleasurable pleasurable avenue and is there do you because um, one of the things that's always sort of uh, not confused me but I think it's a really weird quirk of TV comedy mm. is that you don't get the final say on which take they use or how they edit it and like all of that crucial rhythm stuff mm. What, how do you feel about that? Do you just kind of try and offer as many rhythms as possible and hope your favourite one gets through? Like, what is that? That's a really naive question. But like, what does it what does it feel like from that end? And that is strange. It is a um, something that I definitely had. Uh, yeah, it, it because the if you've got a good editor who's got a really good sense of sense of it, then it's uh, then it's amazing. But. Um, yeah, sometimes you see something cut and you're like, oh, that's kind of... That's changed the rhythm of the delivery. And, um, yeah, and som- sometimes it feels... Uh, sometimes it feels like a shame. But, um, yeah. Can you, without identifying it, can you uh, be more specific? <laughs> I, feel, <laughs> I feel like there's a... You know I, mean? I can. I sort of was getting quieter and quieter. Because <laughs> I was thinking, I'm, I'm, getting to, I'm getting into what feels like a field of landmines professionally. <laughs> so, but... It is, it's, a, it's a curious thing about comedy, which it's so dependent on rhythm, but the rhythm is dictated really by people. That you're not in the room when it happens. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, an, unusual, an unusual casting away of uh, control. Um, but, you know, if you... I mean, a lot of brilliant editors just have that. They know they've got, the, they, they've got that. They know it. You know. Totally still employable, Daniel Rigby. <laughs> um, you're, uh, if you, like, you've been acting for, like 15 years or longer, 20 years, something like that? Uh, yeah, 18 years. Yeah. So, what have you, like, what are the kind of, I don't mean the tricks, but what are the sort of the shapes or the sort of uh, approaches or secrets, if you like, that you've learned now? that you could go back and tell yourself 18 years ago like I could imagine in stand up terms mm. I could say to myself fucking slow down stop trying to do an impression of a comedian and just be you yeah. and just keep slowing down and just yeah. describe something in more detail and more detail until they laugh that, those kind of things yeah. they're like equivalent ones for acting because I felt I was an actor for a few years mm. and when I, I kind of officially quit I remember walking out of my acting agent's office because I'd got a comedy agent I was like oh thank god I no longer need to prepare, could pretend to kind of care about certain bits of it but I do sort of go oh I don't think I was entirely shit I did work mm. it'd be quite good to sort of reappraise it somehow yeah but I don't feel I could kind of talk about it or tell anyone how it's done. Right. 
Yeah. Like, so what, what sort of things, like, how's it done? Yeah. <laughs> how, is, how is acting done, Daniel? Say the words out loud. It's very important. Um, uh, I would, I mean, the main, the biggest, the biggest learning curve was getting on a TV set for the first time and realising there's no time for anything. And if you're not uber prepared and done all of your own work, yeah. then you're going to feel on the back foot on a set. Just so I would, I would say to myself, know it inside and out and don't necessarily I mean directors are different but there are directors who will just leave you to do your thing on camera that is then immortalised forever and will just leave you to do it and um, uh, yeah they'll leave you yeah they'll just leave you to it Um, so I would say yeah I would say be as prepared as you possibly can to be on a TV set um, but I, but I don't. I mean, I don't really have any. I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know anything. <laughs> is there is there anything you remember from Rada going? Oh, that was the day it clicked, or that was the kind of the breakthrough moment. Was there like a an exercise where everyone like did a particular? They released a certain muscle and everyone cried. That's what I associate with dark drama school. <laughs> there was crying class. Like we did have crying class where everyone had to cry. Um, there, there's not really there was just a whole you, you have a whole load of shit just thrown at you at drama school and you kind of take from it what you what you want and what you don't like I, 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 the, I'm not a method actor but there's a, a lot of method stuff and so I took a, took a bit of it's useful um, to apply to scripts what you want to do to another character to get get your head out of your ass a bit and just mm-hmm. what am I trying to do to the other person is always should always be the headline um, so I took that away from but I didn't take away the three days that I spent in the enchanted forest in Larbon <laughs> Larbon's La- <laughs> actually really useful oh Larbon is um, Larbon's move notation yeah, yeah exactly. yes. it's we- like an incredibly complex like like a notation like musical notation but kind of four dimensional in order to you can write it and then the person can look at it and do exactly what they said yeah 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 it's it's different it's way it's just a vocabulary to okay. describe uh, uh, different physical traits that you okay. might you might be able to employ for a character but as part of it our teacher put us for three days in the enchanted forest where I was a I think I was a goblin called Gary with a with a little rag around my head I hid under a table for a day and then I called in sick <laughs> didn't want to do it. I may just say all of your performances display terrible physicality is it real shame <laughs> yeah yeah um, so yeah it was a real it was a real um, pick and mix Let's talk about Isaac Steele and the Forever Man, um, because I think in the context of the conversation we're having, I, there's a whole other fun layer to it, which is you creating order out of chaos. Right. One of, the, I mean, tell us just give us the give us the the sort of the introduction, not the introduction. Give just tell us what it is. I, you'll describe it better than I can. It's so fucking good, mate. Honestly, thanks, I mate. loved it. Thank I you. Loved it. Uh, thanks, uh, Isaac. Isaac Steele and the Forever Man is. An audiobook. It's a it's a story that is set in a ridiculous 
universe in the far future uh, and is sort of a parody of sci-fi and sort of a parody of noir tropes um, but is also this kind of it it wants to be a big rollicking daft space adventure as well so that's uh, it's the closest thing to Douglas Adams it's the closest thing to Douglas Adams and I saw there was I copied out a quote from from one of the uh, reviews which said um, not since the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy have listeners been offered such a joyful anarchic and insightful universe and it's. I think the moment it got me very early on. The, do Do you know what moment? Do you? Can you imagine? Like, is it a thing that people say to you? Oh, I like that bit. That early on bit. Is it's there a, always a different? It's always okay, a different. Okay, okay, Everyone's got a different one. Because yeah. for me, it was like it was uh, make my eye go big. I said, and my <laughs> eye went big. <laughs> that from that you just had me. I was like, oh my god, that's just told us that the character is somehow a cyborg or implant or something. It paints this picture of the world in which I'm. Like, oh fuck, we're in this world, and it it was piss funny and you delivered it brilliantly and it's what's really funny actually looking at some of the the, the kind of Amazon reader kind of uh, reviews or listener reviews I should say um, is that they don't necessarily know that you're a very successful comic and actor and comic actor so some of them are like yeah he reads it not badly as well <laughs> yeah oh, no shit <laughs> so just tell me about how you wrote it what, what were the circumstances whereby you sat down to write it um, thank you, by the way. That makes me so happy. I just love it. Um, it, uh, it, it was an idea. It, it, an idea that's been around for absolutely ages, and it started as me noodling with a Blade Runner piss take, and because uh, I've always I've written prose like since I was a little kid, written prose stories and loved writing prose, and always wanted to try writing a funny bit of prose. Um, so for for years it was it was something that I was noodling around with, and then. Uh, it was my agent said Audible are looking for this type of thing and it has to be cross genres possibly a series ideally comedy and it was just it was just a perfect sort of fit so then I put together a treatment and um and a sample of of the the stuff that I was sort of playing with which was way more psychotic and weirder originally than what it ended up being and then I sat down to write it and wrote a whole a whole first draft with him being this kind of psychotic because for I mean for, uh, for listeners it takes place in a universe that is ruled by greatest Britain um, which rules the discovered universe and he is he works for the Department of Clarification clarifying, clarifying complicated situations between species and robots and all, all these kind of things um, so uh yeah, I've lost my thread of what was um, You were talking about, you wrote a whole first draft of it. Yes, I wrote, wrote a whole first draft of him being this kind of, like, real real believer in Greatest Britain. Okay. And, and my idea was, could, could I make a really lovable far-right character? <laughs> Who <laughs> was the challenge? One of the challenges in my head was: Can I start this guy, who's basically a fascist working for fascists, and have him come on this journey um, to 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 realize you know, re- realize the error of his ways? You know, by the end, and you love him. The the editor on a Zoom call wanted to have a conversation with me because she asked me what my politics were. <laughs> she, <thought laughs> I, she basically was like, are you a... You, are you a you've got quite, You've got quite alt-right skin. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and, and she also said that he was 
that, that your protagonist in the email before the Zoom she said uh, your protagonist is too disgusting to follow which uh, was quite a quote so I had to that all went in the bin and, and rewrote it okay. in the first lockdown so that was the first lockdown project basically okay. was the rewrite and tell me about the, uh, the how much of the plot from that first draft stayed uh not a lot because I didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing and it was really tricky I mean it it really I mean story is even because I wanted to write a fairly traditionally structured story adventure type thing well it starts as a mystery goes into a sort of space opera type place but you you think yeah I mean it's really really difficult and I'm not very yeah I couldn't I stared into the abyss a few times with it definitely um, so it, it all went, it all, a, a lot of it went in the bin. Some of the settings stayed the same, some some scenes stayed the same. Please be as specific as possible, just because I'm a huge fan. <laughs> I'd really, really be interested to know which well, he always went to he always went to the planet Cheadle yeah. and um, helped the, uh, the, the enablement centre there survive the siege and he always met the giant and the building the, the kind of sentient Patrick building. The building Patrick yeah, the building yeah, yeah Patrick the building was in the first draft um, so so yes some of those kind of settings and weird weird characters they, they stayed the same but I had to introduce a sub I didn't have a subplot and at the end it was it was it was all very like I raced to just race to the end because I was like I don't know what I'm doing I don't know what threads I'm, I'm not tying up any threads there's just threads everywhere and I'm just covered in threads and the end <laughs> and that was it and then and so talk to me about this so your editor then says hey why don't we tie up hey, some of these threads yeah why don't you write an actual story um, <laughs> yeah so yeah, and this is at the, this is like the only long form thing you've ever done Still, like now yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, she she took she was brilliant. Um, she took um, some of the some of the elements that were already there and said, maybe you develop this a bit more and have this as a subplot, and you tie those up and connect them somehow towards the end. Um, but take this out, and she filtered out a lot of the other stuff that I had just sort of thrown thrown at the wall and um, uh, and and kneaded it up massively. Yeah. So, when you were writing it, was it even more chaotic than the finished product? Just to come back to that idea of chaos, because it is like if I were to visualise it, it's a it's like a throbbing spaceport of a world. Yeah, it's there's yeah. just stuff everywhere, you yeah. know, yeah. and different races and ludicrous names and brilliant ideas and kind of like you know the greatest Britain stuff and kind of oblique references to the council and then eyes going big and spending splibs and never explaining it. You know what I mean? There's so yeah. much. Like it's such a. Uh, I don't know, a romp isn't the right word, but I can't even imagine that you had a romp in the creation of it. It's such a joyful unrolling of someone's imagination. Yeah. Well, I fired all of my comic energy into it, all of my creative, and if and that's been pent up for a while, and there's been this slight disaffected feeling in me of going, I've stopped doing live comedy, I'm not doing enough of my own stuff, and and I just feel like I did turn in... Turn in on that project and just sort of fire everything out of the brain. Ten years worth of no pointless car journeys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
Yeah, but it's but it's also the. I mean, looking back on it, it's I feel ba- I feel baffled by the world uh, at the moment, and I feel it, it's it's sort of a, a of a piss take of how everything feels, which is this impossibly complex place with all kinds of stuff flying about, and how ridiculous if you had a department that would. A government department that was responsible for clarifying things. Yes. About yeah, like all, all the um, the kind of the tribunal sort of scenes. Yeah. Which are kind of like they're a sort of mockery of a kind of Kafkaesque, or like the idea <laughs> the idea that all the civil servants, like if you hear them behind a door, you just hear people screaming, screaming. "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> and like that never changes and it never ends. It's just kind of yeah. It's just like as a, as a res- that does make sense to me as kind of as a response to the kind of chaos around. And did, like, how much of you is in is in Isaac mm. now that we know he isn't far right <laughs> and, it, and it didn't follow that kind of path. Yeah, I think when I uh, when I read it back, I realised I'd allowed myself to maybe reveal more of myself in him than I'd intended or was conscious of. Um, I mean, because he's a prick. I mean, don't, I, and he's not that nice to people. He's an anti-hero in that sense, but he's got a good he's got a good heart. But the but there are elements to him that that there's this ultra nihilism to to his thinking and a uh, a background uh, of, uh, I mean a comically exaggerated tra- trauma in yeah. his life yeah. um, and a way that he, he he struggles to kind of um, exist he struggles to relate and he struggles to exist I'm, I'm in no way close to what he is in the book and it's all comically like wound it's all comically dialed up to you know 10 but it there's definitely elements of him that i uh i read it back and went oh right yeah okay i understand i'm channeling when i felt like that you know recognize that part because i because i guess it's just something that i understood and could express yes yes Um, he's a sort of he's a repressed alcoholic junkie with a with a totally unique talent or like a, a t- I'm not suggesting that's how you regard yourself no, but no. <laughs> you know but he does like his ability like the kind of one of the initial premises of the story is that he can speak and understand any language in a world full of language from yeah. different languages from all over the universe yeah and so he does have a kind of a com- an ability to communicate that kind of renders him useful somehow yeah yeah I'm leaving a gap there in the hope that you'll go, yeah, and I suppose communication's important to me or something. <laughs> I don't know quite what I'm well, sort of I, expecting. Yeah, I, 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 like, I know it isn't you. Sounds a lot like you. <laughs> what? Yeah, you, <laughs> you, you, you the character. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, his, his voice sounds like your voice as well. Oh, right, right, yeah, right. I see. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, with some of that stuff with the... With, I mean, the, the noir, that, that's the... His, his character is a kind of patchwork quilt of um, noir tropes that I'm taking the mickey out of, like his heroin addiction, his fact he's always drinking um, and what I thought might be funny is if he's if he is an antisocial personality who struggles and um, that he has the ability to understand everyone in the universe and has to communicate with yes, them right, but, yes. but, but it's um, slightly forced upon him uh, 
totally contrary to his na- to his nature. Um, but I don't know how I don't know how much that. I mean, in terms of the, I, I think where I exposed more of myself at, at my darkest is is in is in the areas where uh, where he goes really nihilistic or he goes mm. down these holes and you're aware because we're in his inner monologue um, th- th- that's where I, I sort of felt the, the most like oh maybe I've uh, maybe I'm putting something out there that I didn't mean to but mm. um, yeah do you feel nihilist or ultra nihilist I feel like <laughs> I feel like it's hard to resist and, and we live in these. T- I mean, we live in a time as well. It's really hard to resist it, isn't it? Because you, because there's so much that's going on that there's been no bottom to the past, however many years. You think that there's some bottom, and then it, and there's something else. And you think, well, what is? And certainly, recently with recent events, it doesn't help the the existential dread feeling. I think I, I do have to. Um, I do have to fight it because I know it's not a good feeling and I mean but if you don't have a belief system and it's hard when all this shit's going on to contextualise it and make yourself feel better it's hard to self-soothe your psyche in these situations you just have to accept what's going on how do you feel? Uh, well, I, as the uh, owner-operator of two children, I have mm. to be hopeful. I have to be optimistic, despite how I really feel deep down. Yeah. You know, I do, you know, a couple of episodes ago on the, the podcast, we had uh, Eddie Peppertone, who is, uh, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know if you've seen For the Masses, his latest uh, special on YouTube. It's just incredible. And... It is, as with all of his stuff, it's just a howl at the apocalypse and, you know, and the, the kind of the ludicrousness of, of where we are. How do I feel? I don't know. I, I, uh, I certainly, I certainly, a couple of weeks ago when Putin first started saber rattling about this special nuclear, you know, I've put the, the special division on, you know, high alert or whatever it was, I was with my family in the car and read that because my wife was driving and I kind of read that and for an hour felt like the nukes were in the air and I alone had the information and I had to pretend everything was fine Mm. for them and that was an extraordinary sort of feeling of like oh yeah what uh, you know let's think of forward planning like worst case scenario forward planning for someone that has kids (laughs) so (laughs) you know what I mean that's uh, yeah 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 I have a recurring nightmare, which is... I mean, I'm, I'm oversharing way too much. <laughs> Come on, hit me. Fuck it. Um, I have a recurring nightmare, and the recurring nightmare is I am in a place where I live, which is, it never looks like where I live, looking out of a window, and I see a nuke hit, uh, however, like a mile away, and I know that... And that's all, that's all it is, but it regularly happens, oh, even without the news. <laughs> yeah. So the existential, you know, that's, that's all, it's always How there. long have you been having that? Years. Really? Yeah, but I, I mean, it's, it's not Did like you watch every... Threads when you were a teenager or something no, like that? Is yeah, there no, some I sort think... of, do you attribute it to a particular piece of learning or some, someone saying something to you? You went, oh, that's what, kicked that off. That's a fucking no. horrible recurring dream. no. No, maybe it's from Terminator 2. I mean, that one was pretty vivid, right? Yeah, 
and she's at the fence. Yeah. It's that fence. It's that Why fence. is that fence so important? Like, it's I know that exactly that's the first, as soon as you're watching it, she's grabbing it and yeah. then she disintegrates. But um, maybe it's from that, I don't know. It's, yeah, but it's just, it just play, plays into uh, that, that recurring um, nightmare perfectly. Yeah, the actual reality that we're living in at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> I think um, I, I've been uh, listening to lots and lots of podcasts where military commentators say things like, mm. look, there's absolutely no way he'll launch any nukes mm. uh, because, it, you know, it, it's just purely tactical gameplay, saber-rattling, showing you he's not mm. afraid, trying to scare everyone, trying to bully everyone. He knows as well as anyone else there's no winners if you do that. Yeah. And I'm like, cool, I'm going to totally believe that then. I'm like, grab onto a thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I adhere to this, actually. Yeah. I believe what this, this particular former general said, so everything's going to be fine, and then I'll believe that for a bit, and then I'll just let myself distract myself. I'll just kind of go, oh, well, you know, I feel like hell now, but something you'll do oh look at you know what I mean yeah. just kind of rely on being distracted he's awful he's <laughs> awful but I go, you know, I've got to be optimistic um, to return to the abyss uh-huh. <laughs> That's, yeah. I mean there's, li- there's literally an abyss what's it the great not the great IO but what's the what's the the absence the absence the yeah. absence yeah do you recognise not just with Isaac but do you recognise elements of the world as being like a development of your psyche or your preoccupations? Oh yeah, probably. <clears throat> yeah, the the absence is this irradiated wasteland, which in my head it's a whole continent which has been um, er- eradicated by humanity, which just feels like something humanity would do. Um, and that, yeah, that's obviously out of that nightmare and yeah, those preoccupations. And how much of the world did you plan, and how much did you discover by writing it? Like just purely technically. I, I mean, I, I it is it's a, a facet of how much I love it. And I was like half an hour in going, I should have fucking written this. I should have. <laughs> this is oh god, I love all of these things. I love all of this territory. I should have fucking got fucking uh, creepy. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. Just so I want to know, just technically, when I come to write my great <laughs> how much am I planning in advance? How much of the world is there in your head before you put finger to keyboard? It was around, it was knocking about for absolutely ages, I would say close to, uh, to 10 years. So, so it was fairly, fairly well formed by the time I came okay. to write it out properly as, okay. as a project. Before I, before I, oh dear listener, I couldn't have written it. <laughs> I hate to be starting from now. I'll write in ten years. I, 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 but in terms of the world building, I did start making notes uh, specifically about how everything worked um, before I before I sat down and wrote the first draft. I, I, I thought I'm going to I'm going to write down how the, the politics works how the economics works how um how it all functions you just i mean really boring dry stuff but just stuff that that to make it more solid in in my mind yeah um, to make sure you don't get to the final chapter and go oh god that doesn't make sense yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that this, sense. this yeah. key defining thing couldn't have happened yeah yeah so i did uh i did do a fair amount of that but to be fair a lot of it happened in in the writing of it, uh, and a, a lot of it changed as well, just to suit the story. Um, so it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't cut and dried. 
Yeah. And what are your big sci-fi kind of lodestones in your own, you know, in your own love of sci-fi? Yeah. Um, well, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, obviously. Um, Blade Runner. Uh, Watchmen. Yeah. Alan Moore. Um, did you watch the recent TV series? I did. Yeah. I fucking loved it. Yeah, I loved it. Absolutely yeah, it was loved great. That. Terrific. Um, and and what else? I mean, it, there's there's a lot of Rick and Morty. I feel and South Park. You know that those sort of animated mm. comedy world. The kind of irreverence of them. The sort of like, no, they're dead. That yeah. Kind of. Yeah. 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 The. Uh, because comedy callousness is something that's always really appealed to me. <laughs> but, and I always find it very funny, but um, it was something I definitely had to dial down after the first draft. There was way too much of it in it. The risk is, because it's just a slice, it's one conversation, you end up feeling like you're representing yourself as something. That yes, of course. You're, you're like this grim, depressive person, which is only like part, like a little part, sliver of the yes. truth about you. Yes. Um, and also there's something about talking about that stuff, which I've never really done, um, but um, it feels like when people... When people it feels glib, like it all when when especially if, when celebrities or pe- when people I follow on social media that they it always feels like lip service because the, the reality of struggling and not coping and dealing with mental health problems I you know it's fucking horrible mm. and it's horrible for people around you and it's it's not as easy as going I'm not okay or, yeah. or this this stuff yeah. that people the social throw- media version of it I'll just put that in a little window and go guys I was really struggling yeah. Well, here's a photo of me in tears, and you go, "It's not that, is it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like a huge black streak through your life that sucks everything in." Yeah, and I don't know how I don't know how helpful. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it helps some people, but for me, it, it's also about how much you want to. You just don't want to just treat it glibly. The reality of it is just so different yeah. from from that, and I don't know how much of a service is paid to it by by treating it just as a slogan or as a, you know, so you don't want to seem like you're doing that as well no. or jumping on some sort of bandwagon, which is I, never, of, I've, like I've never talked about it for that reason, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. The end of Isaac Steele, which I found really moving, where he says to Timothy, there's something inside of me that I just can't reach. Mm. And I was proper like, oh, you prick, I wasn't expecting that, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like I really, like I, it really, really got me. And I, mm. and I, and I felt... Did you in the writing of it? Was there? And I wish there was a better word for this. It's such a fucking stupid biblical word. But was there something whereby you felt a bit shriven for having kind of gone? Oh, it's that. <laughs> That's the thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, that that expression. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe. There's so, so, something in 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 that relationship and in Isaac is his struggle with love and connection and that feels like something you know that that's that quote that you just said that's part of what he's saying is um i can't do this stuff it sort of etches sketches your mind and i definitely can uh relate to that the feeling feeling out of reach or feeling feeling baffled by uh how you feel or why you're behaving a certain way or 
Yeah. What do you mean etch sketches in your mind? Flesh that out for me, because uh, I think that, uh, that sounds good, but I don't quite know what you mean. <laughs> do you mean the shaky, shaky bit where you delete something? You delete it, yeah, where... where I think when I imagine Isaac as a character getting close to someone, and, and this it isn't true for me, I think, maybe slightly, I don't know, I don't know, but... Um, it's like in in that relationship because also what I wanted in the story because I, I feel like all good com- the comedies that I love there's always love in there there's always love somewhere and that's why Isaac and Timothy's relationship becomes this sort of central thing um, and a love affair um, and that that I imagined that in his mind that love because I find I find love tricky love's a tricky thing to learn I feel like it's something that you you, you have to get better at like um, badminton or marksmanship, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but you but that that he's that love getting close to it feels like getting close to like a, a fire or that that he's just got no that it scrambles his mind. And Timothy's got all this love for him and it just etch sketches his mind. He just doesn't know what to do with it, which is why he's so um, he lashes out and why he. Uh, drink so much and uh, drugs so much and all that stuff. Um, there is I'm having very having watched Flowers very recently, but series two, mm. the scene with Donald and Matilda in the car, where yeah. that's the very similar. There's a similar kind of tone to that, which is very. It, it's kind of um, it. You embody it well. In that performance, obviously that's Will Sharp's script, but you embody it well there and you write it well in Isaac Steele and you perform it well in that, you know, in the, the audiobook. Like, it doesn't exist as a book book, does it? No, does it? no. Fuck it, is that annoying? Well, we tried to get... We've, we, I mean, this it was such a bruising experience. I mean, total first world problem. But, um, yeah, like, I can't my, get my audiobook in print. My audiobook won't be a real book. <laughs> but it's it been rejected by like 12 publishers um, 13 I think actually 13 publishers even now the audiobook exists even even, and I think that was why it was so bruising was because I, I dared to dream because it had such a positive response and there was such an overwhelmingly lovely response on Audible and the, it's been reviewed so not, like well by people who've listened to it um, that I thought oh, this will act as a bit of a proof of concept so and it is a book. It's just ready to go. It's just there. Um, please just... I mean, I could print it out, but I can't do <laughs> as many as I'd like. Um, and so, yeah, it, it just... been absolutely told to fuck right off by by, by everyone we approached. Um, we're, we're trying to... We're still working on it, but... Um, the, all, the, all the major ones, all the ones that I thought, oh, this would be a good place for it because it does this, or... A lot of them said, "Well, we do that, so we can't do this." So it was just like a really bruising. Um, Amazon didn't like it. Audible's owned by Amazon. Yeah. Do Amazon want to make a series out of it? Have you oh, considered not, uh, that? Have not, you tried pitching it as a? Not, not pitch that. No, you should pitch idea. it. Why yeah. would you not pitch that? The uh, budget's going to be big. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or animated. Yeah, it might, it might work. The as budget could be big. The budget would be big. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I'd love, I'd love to, I'd love that. I mean, obviously, but that's just not, you know. Have you got any plans for a sequel? 
and also what elements of the experience would you want to repeat or not repeat um, I've started planning um, and by started planning um, and what I mean is I've been playing a lot of Elden Ring um, but <laughs> 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 I, I've, I, yeah, there's, there's a plan. There's a plan for a sequel. There's a plan for more stories in the universe. And I'd kind of sowed, sowed the seeds in the first yeah. one of a few kind of overhanging things that I want to sort of bring back. I wouldn't repeat the experience of not really know, like not really writing a proper story uh, in the first draft and then having to bin the whole thing. So, so what would you do differently? Would you kind of do like a skeleton? plot before you bother writing anything yeah. but that's probably the wrong word in that yeah. context <laughs> yeah okay yeah. yeah I think more more planning more planning definitely is good um, and knowing what you know now about what you accidentally wrote about yourself yeah what will that change about the writing of a sequel will you lean more into that and kind of dig more out of yourself oh. or will your inclination be to go whoo I might have got a bit close to the source there um, I mean I think the main aim with it was to write something diverting and really daft and when the forefront of my mind when I'm, whenever I'm writing is what is daft what is a funny thing to happen now um, would th- wouldn't this be ridiculous? That, those are always like the the foremost questions. Um, so I don't think I'll. I, I don't think I'll because essentially it feels like an unserious uh, exercise, and I don't necessarily want to deliberately go down any kind of contemplative uh, navel gazing area with it. Is there enough? Is there enough creativity, or applause, or laughs, or anything like that? Is there enough of that in the world to? I don't know if I could ask this. I don't know if I'd ask this because I don't. I don't want to typify you as like oh, Daniel Rigby is a fucking basket case. <laughs> I don't yeah, think it comes no, across like this. And no. you've heard the show. You know how comics come across on this show yeah. a lot. But I suppose for the parts of you that aren't happy, for the parts of you that are depressed, for the parts of you that are kind of anywhere on that scale of kind of like a bit fucked off with everything and nihilistic to shit this is that's quite serious you know or anywhere on that spectrum can you fix those parts through your work temporarily or permanently or is it a case of like there's therapy for getting fixed and there's work for doing work I think it should be there's therapy for getting fixed and there's work for doing work uh but as 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 much as something feels not right about not doing it, I would like to. I, I think it will, will go some way to um, helping by doing it and making the effort to get laughs. But um, yeah, blimey, that's a hard question. Yeah. Are you happy? Am I happy? Uh, I am at the moment. Yeah. I am. I am. I mean, I'm scared shitless. Uh, I'm uh, 
I'm anxious. Am I? Am I happy? I'm. I am. I am happy at the moment. But there. But yeah. There's. There's. There's always more happiness to be found. <laughs> So that was Daniel. What what can I tell you to do? He doesn't, as far as I can tell, have a website, but you can follow him on Twitter at Daniel Rigby. And if he's going back into comedy in earnest, if you're going back into stand-up, he'll have a website before long. And it won't be on comedycv.co.uk, but perhaps he's still there. I don't know if you know about that site, comedycv.co.uk. When I started 15 years ago, you absolutely had to upload. It was like a, a kind of entry-level sender thing in. They put you on a website. Suddenly you've got a biog page on a website. And uh, I don't know what happened to it, but nothing has moved on it for many, many years. I hope whoever created it is still alive. Um, but uh, there's a fun game. Go to comedy. Here's a game. Go to comedycv.co.uk and see what is the uh, the most famous person that you can see their very like the the very first web page they ever had and uh, enjoy that. Send in your favourites to at concompod on Twitter. You can go as ever to comedianscomedian.com/insiders to sign up for only two pound a month to get hold of the extras from this episode. Episode, as well as the insider Q&As with Nish, uh, with James Acaster. Guy, my God, I saw Nish Kumar's tour. I think it's nearly finished. It finishes in Basingstoke and there's one or two other little weird bobbly places where um, Nish has, he's kind of doing ones that were sort of uh, postponed or rescheduled because of the pandemic. So there are still a few chances in the UK to see his show, Your Power, Your Control. It is extraordinary. I love the man dearly and I was jealous for a solid morning in that kind of tear up your notebook kind of, oh God, what's the point kind of a way when you see someone truly brilliant, really inhabiting themselves and just with such an extraordinary volume of brilliant, brilliant jokes as well as genuine meaning and passion and everything. Absolutely crazy about that show. So uh, we will get him to return to the podcast uh, before long, I promise. So all of that is on the insiders thing. Um, and I was talking about Daniel. Follow him on Twitter at Daniel Rigby. And please, 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 if you are remotely interested in sci-fi, and particularly the kind of Douglas Adamsy sort of sci-fi with brilliant ideas and silly world building and really coherent, inventive stuff, and very, very inflected with the kind of Britishness, um, which you may love no matter where you are from, if you're into that kind of thing, do yourself a favour. Uh, sign up to the free trial on Audible and get hold of Isaac Steele and the Forever Man. Just give just give it the first half an hour. You'll be hooked, I promise. I love it to bits. This podcast is at ComComPod on Twitter and Instagram. And as I've said in the show notes, probably bloody TikTok as well by the time you read this. It is just spyware, isn't it? But you've got to be on the spyware these days. You can go to comedianscomedian.com or you can find my stuff and sign up for the mailing list at stuartgoldsmith.com. I hope you can't hear a small banging clicking noise in the background, but you might hear that as I'm rocking back and forward on my new chair, which is called the Commodore. Not my name, uh, the name given to it, given to this model by the uh, wholesale chair people, Realm of Thrones. <laughs> yes, um, I bought the Commodore in grey. I recommend it. I like it. I, I Because I'm sitting in the, this is post-amble stuff. Goodbye forever. And I'll speak to you in a minute. Bye. <laughs> got a corner desk and uh, I sort of sit in the sort of facing into the L shape if you will it's like an L shaped desk but I hadn't realized that the the old commodore is um the armrests bang against the sides of it so I have to have the armrests too low and that gets rid of at least most of the point of buying it but there we are it's got a sort of I could have gone for the foam seat but I didn't I went for the mesh seat because it looked all futury and I think the foam seat was probably 
more uh, comfortable. But it's I've got a chair called the Commodore. I've made it. Um, so what else can I tell you? What's been going on? Well, let's talk. Let's talk virality, if that's a word. Um, I did a lovely time in Manchester and a clip from it went viral. Did I tell you about this last week? I may have done. Now it's on 4.4 million views. And the main thing I've learned is that it's made no difference whatsoever to my life. Very exciting to be in the position of going, oh, that's been like I was I kind of saw the the figures on it and kind of went, right, how can I replicate this? How can I turn this into a thing? Understandably. Um, And only a week into the process did I stop and think, oh, that's interesting. 400,000 people, those the the, the 10% of people or so that clicked like, 400,000 people liked that joke. And it was nice. And it's a good joke. It's the the, uh, baby sign language bit from my Conan set. And um, it's very satisfying to think it's been seen by that many people. I think probably the whole Conan set on YouTube has only been seen by sort of less than 60,000, I think, which is nice. But who knows how real the, you know, who knows how many people watch it to the end or what have you. Um, but the, I just thought, oh, that's good. 400,000 people think that joke's as funny as I do. Oh, that's nice. And what I'm what that meant for me, as I said in my recent uh, mail out, but here it is in person, is that um, I really felt like, oh, my God, I have genuinely freed myself from desire. It was simply a very slight nice feeling and a sort of uh, an, an excitement at thinking, oh, maybe I should get the bit between my teeth and do more of these sorts of things, upload more stuff. And I, like Grandfather Time, thinking perhaps there's something in this, uploading my stand-up clips to the internet. Well, maybe I'll give it a go. Um, so it was it was very satisfying to see. Uh, satisfying to kind of finally be in the club of people who've had a thing go viral and can go, cool, interesting. And also satisfying to recognise that it's really not any more than that. But I think the key thing is that you, it's your conversion rate, right, people? Uh, it's it's your conversion rate. You've got to make sure that some of those, my conversion rate, the number of people that followed me as a result, as a result of it must be something like 0.001. So you've got to work out how to upload this stuff and frame it such that people convert, by which I mean they start following you. Otherwise, it's just a load of randoms in America um, speculating that uh, I absolutely have to be gay and then people uh, replying, no, no, he's British. <laughs> so that's nice. Um, and loads of other people. Yes, I've sort of stirred a bit of a several hornet's nests to do with whether calling something baby sign language is cultural appropriation from people who use sign language. I have no position on that, but I'm open to being educated. Um and uh, and other things besides when something's so successful you sort of go oh yeah obviously some someone in millions of people is going to be deeply offended by this so it gave me a bit of a gave me a bit of a perspective on that as well so that was fun and um, i'm going to keep this one brief solely because uh, we have a play date and they will be marching into the house uh, and stamping on the ceiling directly above my head moments from now so uh, i'll have a lovely play date and i get the impression there it's a man called alan he's come around to have a play date with me um i will go and uh, muck in and do fun playing things with both myself and someone else's children Ooh, weird um, and you go off and do whatever you need to do next week bobby mayor and in the meantime i get a cracking episode and in the meantime i'm going to get busy recording a whole load more of these speak to you soon